Again, it is very much a blessing to be here the day before Independence Day. I know that I look the part. I look like I'm going to be shaking hands and kissing babies, but that is not what I'm here to do this morning by any means. This morning we will be our main text there. If you would look at the screen would be in Romans chapter 8. And so if you would like to make your way there, uh, we will be for the most part sitting and resting there this morning. But it was, in fact, the reformer's reformer, Martin Luther, who said, A man cannot do good before he is made good. And in our culture today, there is truly a sort of confusion as to what is good, what is truth. We very much are in a culture today that would see things more through a relativist uh, sense that being that what is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. And that really truth is, in fact, relative. But we know that this is not, ironically, the truth. And so, in fact, many of these people are saying that in our culture today, everything is on really discovering your own truth or following your own truth. But when we would look at Scripture... We could look at verses like there in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, where it's very clearly stated, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now what this is saying in New Testament terms, we could look at Matthew chapter 7, at Christ's words as he discusses that there is a narrow path, but here we would see the representation of a broad path. This broad way that many are walking down that seems right to them. It is their truth and to them they see no problem with the path of which they are walking. But its end is in death. We could look there forward at Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. Where Jeremiah writes, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And so here clearly we could see that opposed to the culture would be scripture that would say, you think that you know the way that you are going to go, but you do not. We know that uh, we just talked about a couple Wednesdays ago. As we talked about in Psalm 119, 105, that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And therefore, those that would not be walking according to its ways would be walking in darkness. And so this morning, we're going to look at truly what is truth and how one could walk there in it. So this morning, before we dive into Romans chapter 8, I would first like to really get some context here to where Paul has uh, gotten to up to this point. There previously in Romans chapter 7, we see Paul defending the law, although it would most certainly, if you have read Romans chapter 7, it does not seem some of those times as if he were to be defending it. It would almost seem as if he was speaking almost negatively of the law. But he ensures to include verses like there in Romans chapter 7, Verse 7, he says, What shall we say then, that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been by the law, I would not have known sin. 
for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so here Paul is making expressly clear that as he is talking about both the believer and the unbeliever's struggles with sin, he is not by any means saying that the law itself is sinful. We see this really expressed there in Romans chapter 7 from verses 8 to 12. He goes on as he discusses and goes further on that point, And he begins discussing how he sort of saw himself made alive through the law. And we can see this shadowed as he talks about in Philippians as he begins to list this long laundry list of Levitical and these judicial laws that he was following. He says, I had done all these great and mighty religious works. And yet he then says that compared to the righteousness of Christ, it is like garbage. And so here he is clearly showing that these things that he used to think would bring him spiritual life, he is saying has brought him really nothing by itself. And he makes clear there in verse 12, he says, although the law is holy and good, if we were to look previously in verse 11, he says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So he's saying that the purpose of the law is that we would see how much, how truly wicked that we are, how often we have broken God's law. And then he goes through for the remainder of Romans chapter 7, and he really discusses how that even as believers we desire to live righteously, we desire to live according to God's law. And yet if we were to look at verse 19, that very famous phrase where he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I'm sure we as believers can attest the same thing. That so often we desire to do what we know the Bible says is true and what the Bible says is right. And yet there are many, many, many times that daily we can see ourselves still falling into the snare of sin. And so as we get into chapter 8, there are really three things that we see prevalently made clear. And that is sin is made clear by God's law. Therefore, God and His law dictates what is sin, not us. I don't have the authority to say, well, I don't believe this to be sin, therefore it is not. It is because we have sinned that we are in need of grace. And the third is that even under grace, we will continue to sin, yet our attitude towards sin ought to be different. One that chooses and looks to confess our sin to God, as John would say in 1 John 1, 9, and then therefore repent of that sin. So now this morning, let us get into our text. In Romans chapter 8, there in verse 1, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul has understood that he has really, throughout chapter 7, maybe come across as discouraging as he discusses, even to the point there of his proclamation of, O wretched man that I am, as he discusses 
us as believers and the struggles that we go through with sin. As he may have seen himself discouraging, he begins chapter 8 with this great encouragement that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And although I am reading from the ESV this morning, the Textus Receptus would have more on this subject to say. And I promise that is the last time I, any of us will rib our Pastor Craig, who has poured his heart and soul into our now wrapped up series on the Bible itself. I promise that is the last time. But there in the King James or the New King James, we would see the phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Therefore, there has been a distinction made that Paul has really cut out sort of what we would call today an easy believism. That it is not simply that I can just sort of declare myself saved and I can say, well, I did this at one point in my life and now I am really off the hook. Paul would not contradict himself from two chapters earlier when he writes there in Romans chapter 6 verse 2, how could we that have died to sin still live in it? Paul is not saying that Simply because we will struggle with sin because we are still in the flesh, does this give us an excuse? It has simply removed the condemnation. And so Paul is therefore not giving us sort of an entitlement to sin, but he is merely saying that those that are in Christ have therefore had that condemnation from that sin removed. And we can see this by them walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There in verse 2, Paul continues, and he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now here, this law of the Spirit, or as he would call in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, the law of faith, is stating that this gift of faith that has been given to us by the renewing of our mind, by regeneration, by being born again. It is therefore by this cause that we have been loosed from this condemnation that would come from the law, from us being breakers of the law. Now here one may say, you know, he, as he has gone back and forth, and it seems he's spoken almost negatively of the law, then positively of the law, and we would say, well, Paul, how in the world could you say that it is a law of sin and death? And he almost answers this question there in verse 3. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This does two things. This lets us know that Paul is not saying once again, as he stated in, verse, or in chapter 7, that the law itself is not sinful. But again, the purpose of the law is to bring to our attention our state of sinfulness. And that the end result of that state of sinfulness is death and condemnation apart from Christ. And so, he states here very clearly in verse 3, that God has done what the law that was weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so here Paul is making very clear that we could not uphold the law 
ourselves. The psalmist there in Psalm chapter 51 verse 5 makes it abundantly clear when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's a very positive verse. I know. I've been asking Hobby Lobby to put that on Mother's Day cards and on uh, newborn cards, but they refuse my letters. They're all about Psalm 139. It's all this fearfully and wonderfully made stuff. But um, here, the psalmist is making abundantly clear that when we are born, we are born into a sinful nature. They make it very abundantly clear there in Psalm 58 verse 3 as well. As he talks about, after conception, they go about lying. As we've made very clear in the past, nobody had to teach us how to lie. Nobody had to teach us how to do sinful things. It comes to us very, very naturally. It's almost a second nature to us, even from birth. And so, here, Paul is making expressly clear that we could have never fulfilled the law of ourselves. It had to be Christ. Only the Son could come in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, that He could condemn sin in the flesh. We see this uh, further expanded there in verse 4 as he finishes this statement. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Here Paul speaks of this righteous requirement that needs to be met. I think so often if we could walk this entire area of Cincinnati and knock on every door and every person who would answer that and you could say do you believe yourself saved and they would more than likely say yes I am and you could say well why do you think that and their first response would be well because I'm a good person because I do good things but we must remember that the the let in for heaven. The expectation is not one that is good, but one that is righteous. It is not simply a goodness that will allow us to be entered into the gates, but it is a righteous requirement that needed to be met. One that Paul has made all through Romans, most notably there in Romans 1 through Romans 3, has made abundantly clear that of our own we could never reach. And Paul mirrors this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, as he says, For our sake, he made him, referring to Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not by our righteous acts, our good deeds, any of these things that we are saved. We are saved purely by faith. Faith that the law has already been fulfilled through Christ and Christ alone. If we were to trust in any work, the only person's work who would be good enough would be Christ's. Because whether it be mine or anyone else, any other person but Christ, it would fall short. It would not be enough to meet God's standard, this righteous requirement. 
And so then, Paul really turns his attention. And he goes from, instead of speaking on this righteous requirement that was met, and whom it was meant for, and he really goes on to speaking about those that are walking in the ways of the flesh, those in the mind of the flesh. There in verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For those that are walking according to the flesh, their focus is solely on fleshly things and fleshly desires. As 2 Timothy chapter 3 would write and describe them, that these people are lovers of self. These people are incredibly self-centered. This is why when we look at the culture today, and as I want to focus on my truth and what I think is right, and I want to walk according to my own path, Everything is focused on my own self-centeredness. And yet Paul is saying here that this is not a biblical way to live. This is not a godly way to live, but it is quite the exact opposite. This is a fleshly way to walk through life. It's focusing on these things. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. My focus is no longer solely on myself and now this does not mean that I can live in sort of a way where I am self-loathing all the time. My life is, oh, woe is me. But it is set purely on the worship of God. And the things that I do are considering this constantly. As he goes on there in verse 6, he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. To go back there to Proverbs 16:24, the one who walks according to the flesh, the one that has set their mind on this path, they do not see the way that they are walking as incorrect. They don't see this as wrong. Because again, their mind is set on their own pleasures, their own desires. And they can't really see anything past this. Now, we can see that they can care for people. We see that they can care for possibly another. We think back to Christ's words as he says that, aren't you that are evil can give a good thing? He says you can give a good gift to somebody. You can hear somebody and hear their needs and say, here you go, I hear that you are in need of this. But ultimately, this is not for the glory of God. And that is where the line is drawn in all of this. Is that this is not done to benefit the Lord and to further the kingdom. This is done for their own ego. It's done for their own self-inflation of seeing their own deeds put on display. This is why so often I just sort of shake my head. For those of you that are on social media, I just I shake my head when I see people that it seems we live in an age where we cannot just do a good deed anymore. I can't go serve in a soup kitchen unless I sort of turn my phone and snap a picture of me doing this great and mighty thing and then telling my friends about how this great and mighty thing has made me feel so good. 
But ultimately, again, this is done in the vein of self-exultion. But Paul's saying, this is not the way to go. This is the way of the flesh. But he says here, he makes clear that the person who is a new creation, who has been given eternal life, has peace in his mind with God. When he goes throughout life, the things that he is doing is to honor and glorify God. That that is where his peace is. He has no need to boast in his works. He has no need to boast in the things that he is doing. But it is all done for the glory of God. As we get into our final couple verses, we can see here in Romans chapter 8 verse 7, one that we will sit on for just a little while. As Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So here we see the carnal person, the person who God has not done this great and mighty work in, who the Spirit does not indwell within. They are hostile towards God. And not just towards God, but it says there, it says it does, they do not submit to God's law. Their mind refuses to submit to God's law. I think in our country, we've truly seen this this past month. As we saw the celebration countrywide of Pride Month, as we saw people who rejoiced in this law that was created back in 2015 of these people rejoicing in this decision. And yet for those that stand on biblical truth, these people who speak, you know, live for your truth and follow your own path. That when we say, well, that goes very much contrary to God's truth. They say, how dare you? How could you say such a thing? This is a great thing that has been done. And we see the opposite that's been done just recently. With the decision for pre-born life to be protected by the states rather than by countrywide. And when this decision is made, it's how dare they. They've taken this right from me. But it's because their mind is opposed to God's law. And that is why for us as believers, oftentimes it breaks our hearts. Because we as believers have really one thing in mind, and that is heaven. That's what we're to set our minds and our affections on. And therefore, in setting our minds on heaven, it is not just we and our selfish desires. We care for those that we love. We care for those, our friends, our family. And we desire to come to see them love the Lord. <laughs> And to adhere to God's law. And so when we see these things, so often it breaks our hearts. Because as we share the truth, we see sometimes those friends and those family as they respond so negatively and so against the Lord. And it breaks our hearts. And it ought to break our hearts. Not to see them as some wicked person and some lost person. While Scripture would most certainly say that this person would be described as lost, it ought to break our hearts that they might be found to bring to them the gospel, to continue to bring to them the truth. It should bring us, just as it brings the Lord, no delight in the death of the wicked, nor should it bring us any delight. It should be something that breaks 
our hearts to see people lost. Those in our city, whether they be friends, whether they be family, whoever it may be, this ought to be our heart's desire to see them adhere to the truth. But it does become so hard, and if we're not careful, our hearts can harden towards them. Because at best, when we share the truth with them so often, they huff and they roll their eyes. Or if you're on Facebook, they laugh, react your post. And it's all in spite of what you've shared and what you've said. And we can grow hard in our hearts toward them. But we cannot do this. This cannot be our response. I don't want to get too far ahead as to what our response ought to be. But we cannot do this. Because we have to remember that here, if we were to finish out verse 7 one more time, that their mind is set on the flesh and is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is saying, apart from God giving them eyes to see, ears to hear, and understanding, they cannot adhere to God's law. They will have no desire to. And he goes further there to finish out this text here in Romans chapter 8, verse 8. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And again, he is saying, since they do not regard God's word as truth, since they do not see it as the truth that it is, they can have no way of pleasing God. Because as we talk about these things, there are people who will deceive themselves into not trusting in Christ, but they will read terms like this or read chapters like chapter 7 and see as the Bible describes it as holy, as it describes it as good, as it describes God as righteous. And they will say, well, maybe if I just live like this, I'll be accepted. But again, this is no longer for the glory of God, but this is to protect myself. It is not that God would be glorified that they may try to do these things. We cannot convince God that we are good by morality. We can only be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven by the righteousness that comes from Christ. Again, as we read there in 2 Corinthians, it is by His righteousness, not our own. And so, this morning as we wrap up, I want to look at one final piece of text here. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3. As Paul is giving Titus the responsibilities and the things that he would like for Titus to do before he leaves this ministry. In this final chapter, we see Paul as he writes to Titus. This here in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, we should be very clear that as it states that we should be submissive to rulers and authorities, this does not mean that we should see every decision that is done by a political head 
as good, that we should see it as a beneficial thing. This is not what it means. But it does mean that there has to be some level of respect for the person that God in His sovereignty has placed in charge of a nation. Whether that be on either side of the political spectrum. We have to at the very least have a level of submission and respect for them. We do not get to pick a political party and say, but I despise the opposing side. That is not the heart that we are to have as believers. And so here Paul is saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We're not simply to just lie around idle. We are to be ready to jump in and do good for the glory of God. There in verse 2, he continues on to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is the difficult part. This is where I don't get to allow myself to lash out. I don't get to blaspheme somebody. I don't get to drag somebody's name falsely through the mud. I think it's very interesting as he says to avoid quarreling. I think so many times there can be very, very, very good things that can be said, very good things on social media that can be shared, very good messages to be said, but they are all done with the wrong intention. It is not done to further God's glory. It is not done to display God's truth. But it is done because you know that somebody that you are saying to in the crowd, you are saying that somebody, when I share this post or I uh, state this thing on social media, I know that just a little prick is going to come to them and they're going to say, man, I can't believe they just said that. They know how I feel about this subject and I can't believe they would say it. Now again, we have to remember that this is not just if somebody gets mad, you've messed up. Again, we are dealing with a culture that is opposed to God's word. They will become upset. But it is what was your intention of saying it? Was your intention of saying that thing to start a fight because you knew that it would light a fire under them and they would get upset? That's not a good way to start a biblical conversation. That is not a good way to start a gospel presentation. And he goes on there in verse 2. He says to be gentle. This is how our responses back ought to be. That it is not to be made out of spitefulness. It's not to be proved with yelling. I don't know about you all. I don't really have much conversation with people that when we disagree, they start yelling. It doesn't make for a very good discussion. We can disagree on things. But believe me, we are not to respond in a hateful way. We ought not try and yell over somebody, even if they were to be screaming in our face. That does not command 
Paul's commendation to be gentle. And he finally finishes up there in verse 2. And he says to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He is not saying this is how you ought to deal with believers and believers alone. He ensures that he doesn't, you don't get the impression that this is just how I'm to speak to my leaders, to my, you know, my presidents, all of these people, all these rulers, as he's identified in verse 1. He says we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people, whether they agree, whether they disagree, whether we love them, whether they be our enemy. We are meant to show courtesy towards them. Even Christ would say we are to even love our enemies. Therefore, we have no reason to show them a lack of courtesy. And here's why Paul says this. Paul makes abundantly clear why this is how we ought to respond to people walking even according to the flesh. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We have to remember that God's grace does not come with a level of self-elevation. Paul did not go into conversations with unbelievers, I'm sure, with an attitude of thinking he was so much better than they. Paul here is saying, we need to remember as we are going into conversations, even with unbelievers, especially with unbelievers, that we ourselves were just as they are. We had no desire to walk according to God's ways. We had no desire to submit to the Lord. We were foolish. We were led astray. Ephesians would tell us that we were slaves to sin. We were dead in our sin. And so Paul is making abundantly clear that you cannot go on simply seeking to be hated by others and hating others. But by being led through sanctification, being led further by the word, it ought to change our attitude and it ought to lead us into a greater relationship with the Lord. But this does not mean that we can sort of have a pompous and arrogant attitude towards those that are still lost. Because we must humble ourselves and remember that we were once as they are. And that must increase our love for these people. That should give us a desire to see God work in them so much more. So this morning as we wrap up, I would encourage you that as we are imploring all of you to go and invite people as we begin this new study in hopes that we could see the lost be saved, as we implore you to go and not take those invitations only, but each and every person that we see week in and week out enter this church, 
that we would see those who have been blind, that God would open their eyes to the truth and see their need of a Savior.